you know, we are starting this confidence series, and you see the mountains behind me, and you know, how do you have confidence to scale a mountain and whatever. And I was thinking about that, and just, are you familiar with the name Alex Hanold? Anybody? Okay, he gained a little bit of notoriety about six years ago. He climbed, he was the first person ever to climb El Capitan, the mountain, or really just kind of bold face, rock face there in Yosemite National Park. It's, and he did it without any kind of safety equipment, and he did it alone. Okay? So they, he gained some notoriety with the documentary film called Free Solo. Because he did it free, no equipment, and solo. Usually climbers are with other people. He did it by himself. And so you look at that and you think, well, how, did, how did he do that? It's, it's 2,900 feet tall, okay? It's, it's over twice the Empire State Building. And it's, it's massive. Even experienced climbers, they looked at this and they thought, how in the world are you going to do that? I mean, you're, you're crazy, right, to even try to attempt this. And, well, you know, as you know, he practiced many times. You know, he did it over and over and over again to the point where he could, like, visualize the climb. And he knew exactly where he was going to put his feet. He knew exactly uh, his handholds and all this kind of stuff. He could visualize the whole thing. And, but they asked him, okay, it's one thing to believe that you can do it. But it's another to have the confidence to actually go and do it, you know? It's one thing to believe that you could climb it free solo. It's another to have the confidence to actually climb it free solo. So how do you develop the confidence to do that? And he said for him, he had to wait till all the fear was gone. And then once he didn't fear it anymore, then he knew he was ready. That's probably why he's the only one who's done it. You know, all of us, we're still afraid. There's no way, right? Like the fear never goes climbing that thing. But for him, he said he reached a place. I just wasn't afraid anymore. I knew I could do it. So then he did it. You know, as Christians, sometimes we can believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. We can believe that we're empowered by his spirit to make disciples. But sometimes we lack confidence because of the worries of the world, just the cares of life, the busyness, the pressures, things like that. And so we can kind of shrink back and not be the people who God calls us to be. It's not because we don't believe, it's because we lack confidence. And so this year we want to look through at how do we develop confidence. And Peter has a lot to say about that in his epistles, First and Second Peter. So you understand, Peter is writing during a time when the Roman Empire is basically at her height, okay? Uh, she, she was the military force of the world. She was also the economic force of the world. She's very strong. Uh, it, she, uh, Peter's writing during a point in Roman history known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, that began in about 27 uh, BC under the emperor Octavian, and it would last to about 150 AD. And during this time, Rome expanded her borders. She grew stronger. Uh, they developed concrete. And so the Roman road system was developed, with help, which helped Rome kind of expand and, and grow, all those things. Uh, but at the same time as all this was going on, the, the seeds of Rome's eventual downfall had really already been sown. What happened was in 59 BC, Rome was a republic. And at that time, Rome was ruled by three leaders, basically, okay? So they teamed together. It was joint government. And you had Pompey the Great, you had Crassus, and you had Julius Caesar. Crassus died 
That left Pompey and Julius Caesar. Those two kind of got into a fight. They butted heads. Caesar prevailed. And Caesar pro- uh, proclaimed himself to be the emperor. And so Rome shifted from a republic to a dictatorship. And once you move to a dictatorship, it's really, really hard to go back to a republic because nobody wants to give up power, you know? I mean, once they have the power, hey, nobody's giving it up. So the next emperor is not like, hey, yeah, let's form a coalition. No, no, no. They're retaining power. And so this is what happened in Rome. And because of that, you can imagine different factions were created and there was opposition that began to happen and there was dissent. And that was all happening politically But at the same time, Rome, the empire, was very large. I mean, it was geographically large. And with that bigness of the Roman Empire came all kinds of diversity. Okay, there was socioeconomic diversity. There was ethnic diversity, different languages, different cultures, all existing in the Roman Empire. So as this is taking place in Rome, all of a sudden this new movement starts called Christianity. And the one thing that the Roman Empire basically had in common at that time is they looked at this new movement, Christianity, and they said, that's really weird. Those people are strange. They're monotheists. They only believe in one God. Okay, this is really out there at that time in the world because everybody was polytheist. Everybody had a, a bunch of different gods. And here's these Christians. They only have one God. And they call each other brother and sister. It's kind of strange. They're not related at all. And yet they're, they're talking in this familial kind of way. These are odd people. And so the one thing that the Roman Empire had in common was their distrust, which eventually led to hatred of Christianity. And so it became politically advantageous to make laws against Christianity, to persecute Christians. This is why Nero did what he did and other uh, emperors did what they did towards Christians and the church was being persecuted because it was popular in society. It was advantageous for them and the government to do this. And because that's happening, this new movement, this new like organ, uh, fledgling movement of Christianity, you almost wonder, can they make it? Because some of the divisions from the outside were starting to creep into the church. And the church, some people began to value their safety as their number one value, right? How can we just survive? And so survival, safety, those began to be like the top ideals, values for the church. And so Peter's writing, and Peter's going to encourage them. And, and he, what, he, what he's saying is, hey, the divisions that are out there, they should not be the divisions in here, right? The, all the problems are out there, but the solution is in here. The conversations that are taking place out there, they're not the conversations that are taking place in here. Why? Because we're set apart. We're a different people. So here's how you have the confidence to go and be the people of God that he has made you, created you to be. Oh, it's an exciting book. I'm, I'm really looking forward to First and Second Peter with you this year. Let's go ahead. We'll jump in this morning to First Peter chapter one, verses one through twelve. First Peter chapter one, verses one through twelve. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter's writing this letter, and can you imagine if you're part of that church, right, and you're persecuted on everything, you've been dispersed from your home, now you're scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and all of a sudden you get a letter from Peter, okay? Peter's, he's the apostle, he's been with Jesus, he's walked with Jesus, he's discipled many of those there, they have a relationship with him, and here comes the letter. I mean, you can imagine they're gathering around, okay, what is he saying? What's he going to say? And Peter starts, and he starts his letter the way, well, most Greek letters of the day began. I mean, there's a very formulaic approach to Greek letter writing, And so you can read most of the New Testament epistles, and the form is much the same. And so in his beginning, though, in his, as he's just uh, talking to them and beginning his letter, the opening, in his standard opening, he's telling the church who God is, what God has done, and who they are. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. And if you know the answers to those three questions, you're really a long way down on how to live life. I mean, you're really at that point... Uh, very much more equipped to live life in a way that would honor the Lord. And so here's Peter, and he's saying, hey, this is who God is. And he's triune, so he's describing God in a triune fashion. Okay, three persons, one essence. You have God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, all mentioned. And he's also saying what they're doing. This is God the Father, according to his foreknowledge, is electing. God the Spirit is sanctifying the church to be changed to look more and more like Jesus. And Jesus, God the Son, he is cleansing the church who is obedient to him because they're following the commands that he's given. But he's cleansing them so that they can be presented to God, righteous, worthy, holy. So this is what they're doing. And he says, okay, this is who God is. This is what God is doing. And here's who you are. He says, you're elect. You're the elect. Now, what does elect mean? It means you're picked. It means you're chosen. I mean, God looks, he says, I've chosen you to be on my team. Now, some people, they look at this, they have a hard time with that. Listen, I don't, I don't, 
in the history of being like picked and elected and things, that's almost always a good thing, you know? No, no one ever says, oh man, you picked me from the team? I was, I was really hoping I wouldn't make the cut, right? I mean, if, if you go and you uh, ask your spouse to, uh, you know, out on a date or to marry or whatever, you, it, you always want them to pick you back, right? Like, oh man, I, it, would, it would be a real bummer if they didn't. No, being picked is a good thing. Being picked for adoption is a beautiful thing. And that's what this language is actually. It's familial language. And God's saying, hey, I picked you to be on my family. I've chosen to do life with you. I've chosen to bless you, to protect you, to be there for you. It's the familial language that he's using. You're the elect. It's a beautiful thing. Now, some people, they try to take the beauty out of it and say, well, I don't know if it's really that beautiful. I mean, what about those God didn't elect, those ones God didn't pick, didn't choose? Peter's not writing about those. Why are you trying to make Peter write about people he's not writing about? He's not writing about that. He's writing about the elect. He's writing about the church. Now, we know what Peter would say because we read Acts 2 last week. And in Acts 2, what does he say to to those people? Repent and believe. That's what he would say to those who are not picked, not elect, whatever. Repent and believe. Okay? And some people, to be elect is a beautiful thing. Some people, they also try to take the beauty out of it and say, well, do you have to pick him back? Peter's not writing about that, okay? He's not writing about, do you have to pick him back? Just let the text speak for itself, all right? It's very important. Sometimes we get theological systems and we run through these hermeneutical gymnastics to try to make a text say what we want it to say so that we can be comfortable. Just, just let Peter speak for Peter and let God speak for God. He said, hey, the, the elect, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. By the way, uh, just because he doesn't write, doesn't mean we don't know what he would say. What would he say to those who say, hey, I don't think I want to pick God back. Acts 2, repent and believe, same thing, right? Repent and believe. You should pick him back. That's, I mean, that's what he's saying. Pick him back. Now, if I pick Steph, and Steph doesn't pick me, our lives would probably look way different right now, you know? I mean, things would have changed a lot for both of us, right? And who does Jesus pick? Well, look what he does with the disciples. Go to this town, go to this town, go to this town. And if they receive you, great, hang out there. But if they don't pick me back, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town, right? Okay. But it's, you know, sometimes people say, uh, well, has God made us robots? Listen, the only people who I've ever heard, I've had a lot of theological conversations, the only people I've ever heard who say, well, God has made us robots are people who try to build up a straw man so they can tear it down. No thinking person actually says God made robots, okay? I've never heard anyone have a theological, a serious theological conversation where they say, I believe that God made us robots and he just picked for us. No, that's what some theological persuasions try to construct a straw man to win an argument. Just let the Bible speak for itself, okay? And being elect, by the way, is beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. Don't cheapen it. Don't uh, be embarrassed by it. It's a beautiful thing that God picks you, that he loves you, that he's chosen you. But Peter at the same time says, you're elect exiles. You're exiles. What does that mean? Well, you've been kicked out, that you're unwelcome, that you're not picked, not chosen, right? And what's he saying? That's the world's view of you. This is how the world sees you. This is what life was like in Rome. Paul would call Rome uh, Babylon. I have friends who call it Seattle. 
but that, that's, that's just life, okay? That, hey, the world doesn't pick you. So you're elect exiles. You understand, the Bible makes sense of our experience, right? It, it's just true to life. Yes, God chooses you. God loves you. God picks you. The world says, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with you. I don't choose you. I don't pick you. God blesses you. The world burdens you, right? This, so the Bible, he may, it just makes sense of our experience. This dual identity captures the practical experience of every follower, faithful follower of Jesus. And so he concludes uh, this section, Peter does, by saying, hey, You've been picked. You're on teams, Jesus, but at the same time, you're exiled, so may uh, God's grace and peace be multiplied to you. And essentially, you're going to need it in this life, okay? You're going to need it in this world. You need God's grace. You need his peace. May it be multiplied to you. May you experience it. And then he works his way into the body of the letter. And as he does that, you would almost expect, given everything that the church is facing in Rome, for him to address, like, the Roman Empire and the experience of the church at that time. Peter doesn't do that. Instead, he focuses their mind's attention and their heart's affection to who God is and to what God has done and therefore who they are. This is where he's directing their focus. Uh, And what he's saying to them is, hey, this beautiful thing that the prophets had prophesied long ago, the salvation of your souls, that you will one day realize you can trust that it's going to happen because God finishes what he starts. This great salvation you will realize and the outcome of your faith, it, it, it will be experienced, the salvation of your souls. But along the way, he's saying, hey, that's the crescendo. But along the way, there's all these elements and aspects of this great salvation that you can praise God for right now, that you can just be excited about right now. And he begins, and he says that our salvation is because of God's great mercy. Now, he actually could have said a lot of things there, you know. He could have said it's because of God's great love, it's because of God's great grace, because of God's great sacrifice. I mean, he could have gone in a number of different directions. He says God's great mercy. I think one of the reasons why he might have said that is because these Christians at this time was experiencing a culture that was incredibly merciless towards them. Okay, and so he's highlighting that, hey, while culture is merciless towards you, God is rich in mercy. He's lavishing his mercy upon you, not giving you what you do deserve. And so we're saved, Peter writes, to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus lives, we have a living hope. Uh, Paul would put it this way, that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then your faith, your hope is in vain. It's, it's worthless. It means nothing. So the only reason why you can have hope, the only wa- reason why your faith matters is because Jesus is alive. And because we serve a living Lord, therefore we have a living hope. And this hope Part of it is what Christ has secured for us, this eternal inheritance. And so then Peter writes about this inheritance. And he says, it's it's an inheritance that is imperishable. That is, it will never experience any kind of decay. It will never be taken away from you. Now, if you're in exile and you've been run out of your land, you've been forced to flee your home, 
And now you're hearing from Peter, hey, what God has for you, it's never going to be taken away. No one's ever going to make you flee or run away from it. It's going to be yours, and it's yours forever, eternally. I mean, this is of great comfort, right? That it's always yours. It will never be taken away. And more than that, it's undefiled. Uh, It has no stains. There's no presence of sin there at all. It can't be polluted in any way. It's completely pure. Peter says it won't, it won't fade away. It won't grow dim. And that's speaking about the thrill of it all, you know, the excitement of this inheritance. We live in a world of diminishing returns, you know, just about everything. It, it just diminishes the more, the more you do it. So if you go to a roller coaster, like your first time, head over to Busch Gardens, you try out Pantheon or something your first time, it's like, whoa, man, the adrenaline was pumping, man, that, that, was, that was something that was exciting. Uh, by the 100th time, you know, somebody asks you, you know, have you, have you tried Pantheon? Yeah, I did. You know, it was all right. It's pretty cool. You know, it just, it just lessens, right? And it's that way with anything. Anything you buy, anything you acquire in life. I mean, you get a brand new iPhone first time, you're all excited, a, a watch, whatever. You buy a house, a car, whatever. And at the beginning, it, you're so excited with it. And then after a while, I mean, you might still be thankful. You might still be glad you have it. But like the excitement has tapered off a bit. It's not the same level of appreciation. It diminishes. Peter says that the inheritance that we have in heaven, the thrill will always be there. It's not like, oh man, after a hundred years in heaven, it's just, you know, this is nice. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, no, the, the amazement will always be there. It will always be. It will never diminish in the, in the least that this is what God has prepared for us. It's incredible. And so he says, and how do you know you can count on it? How do you know it's going to be there? Because it's protected by the power of God. You understand? This is an eternal inheritance that is it lasts forever. The only one who can protect an eternal inheritance is an eternal God. He's the only one who's able to. And so what Peter is doing here is he's shifting the focus of the church right? Their mind's attention and their heart's affection from everything that's going on into the world and from looking at self and trying to focus on safety and for any divisions that might be happening. No, no, no. Focus on Jesus. Focus on God. And he's turning their hearts and their minds to the one who is eternal. In church, that's what we need to do today. We set our minds on the eternal one. We focus on him. And why is that important? Because when you focus on him, you're able to praise even when you're in exile. You're able to praise even when you're not picked, not chosen, even when you experience just difficulties and painful points of life. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about. Because he says, because we know the character of our inheritance and the character of the one who protects our inheritance, we can praise. And then he moves on to say, and we also know the character of the trials that we suffer in this world. They're temporary. We suffer now for a little while, if necessary. They're temporary. Now, uh, as he's talking about uh, trials that we face, uh, he says that we grieve these trials, all right? That we grieve them. I think that's important to note. He's not saying that, hey, we're just, we're just rejoicing and everything. No, no, that these trials, they do grieve us, all right? This is not like pie-in-the-sky piety here. It's, it's authentic, it's true to life, 
It's real that we experience various trials. And what do we do with those various trials? We don't compare. You know, oh, yeah, that's bad what you're going through. But let me tell you, man, we've got it so much worse. Yeah, this, that's really not that bad. Okay, you need, you need to change your attitude. Sometimes we need to change our attitude, but it's not because there's a comparison thing. All right? Now, what do we do with trials? Well, they're various. They're varying in intensity. They're varying in length, all kinds of things. No, not all of our trials are equal, but we grieve trials just the same because it's the reality of sin in this world. We grieve. But in our grieving, Peter's saying that we can still be people who praise. In fact, we can be people who rejoice. In verse 6, some translations translate it, greatly rejoice. Why? Because we know the character of our inheritance, and most importantly, the character of our God. And so what are we able to do? Rejoice during trials. Greatly rejoice during trials. It's not because of the trial. It's just we know a couple things about the trial too. One of the things we know is that the trial is for a little while. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes you're in the midst of something really hard. It's like, this thing's going to go on forever. I don't see a way out of this. I mean, this hurts. You just got this kind of like, hold this heaviness to your heart about what you're, what you're going through. You're like, man, when, when's this going to end? Peter's saying, hey, it is temporary. It may not feel like it right now. It may, not, it may feel like it's lasting forever. It is temporary. Your inheritance, eternal, lasts forever. So you can praise even in the midst of this trial. More than that, one of the things we also know is that the trial is going to produce something he says that the, pro, the trials prove the genuineness of our faith. And that faith is more valuable than gold. See, God doesn't waste trials. He, he doesn't cause the trials, but at the same time, he doesn't waste them. And some of you, you know this to be true because you've gone through really hard things in life. But you're able to see how God has turned it and worked it for your good and for his glory. Because those painful moments, those, those hard things, you've then been able to have conversations with others. And you've been a comfort to others. You've been able to lock arms with others and encourage others because of the hard stuff that you've gone through. Or you've seen reconciliation. You've seen redemption. You've seen the other side of it. And so you say, I, I can see how God turned it for good. Now, there's other trials that maybe you've been through and say, I don't know why I had to go through that. I don't see any good that's come from that. This is just hard. And sometimes in this world, we can't see it, right? We can't see the big picture and we want, how is God working through this? And one of the things Peter is encouraging us here is, even if you can't see the good, you can trust this. If you're still praising God, if you're still trusting him, what has that trial proved? The genuineness of your faith. It's proved just how much you love the Lord. It's proved your devotion to him, your faithfulness to him, that in the storms of life, whatever comes, you're still praising and why is that important? Because that faith is more valuable than gold. That faith's more valuable than gold. And the trial has proven the genuineness of that faith. So, uh, we also know the end result of the trial. Okay? We know what will happen at the end of the trial. And what does Peter say there? That the trial will ultimately result in praise, glory, and honor for Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus conquers all trials. He conquers all sin. He conquers all stains. He, he will end the curse of sin forever. He will make all things new. So all of his creation will bring all praise, all glory, and all honor to Jesus and him alone. 
So we know where the trial ultimately ends. It ends in Jesus conquering and him getting all praise, all glory, on honor, all honor. So I want you to notice something. In verse 6, Peter is saying, in this we, we rejoice. He's talking about knowing and being aware of the character of our inheritance and ultimately the character of God. When you move ahead to verse 8, Peter's saying, hey, I know you, right? You've stuck through it. You've, you've trusted in the Lord even though you can't see him right now. You've believed in him even through these trials. And so now what do you do? Well, you greatly rejoice. And it turns into a command. Okay, in verse 6, it's a descriptor. In verse 8, it's like he's coming alongside and saying, okay, you're going through something hard right now, and maybe you're tempted to throw in the towel, maybe you think it'd be easier because of the oppression of Rome, whatever, you think, no, you know what, I'm done. Uh, no, 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 you're going to be people who rejoice. And so now he's commanding them, just rejoice. Why? Because there's something about praising God that just changes your outlook on life. It changes your appreciation for who God is and what he's done. So we're a people who rejoice even during the trial. And then Peter turns it around and says, hey, just in case you need a reason to rejoice, don't forget who you are and who God made you in all this. Is you, follower of Jesus Christ, you understand that you're the most blessed people on the face of the earth? He basically says, you know, the prophets of long ago, They were writing for your behalf, on your benefit. And you know what? They would have gladly traded places with you. If they could have traded their sandals for yours, they gladly would have done it. Because they look, and they have to make careful inquiries and all these searches, and they're using incomplete scripture, and they're trying to determine, okay, when is the Messiah going to come? Who's the Messiah going to be? And they're trying to figure it all out. You can see clearly, you now live in this dispensation of the church age, this dispensation of grace, a time of grace, that they didn't get to experience. It says you amongst all people are, are, are so incredibly blessed. You know, the, the prophets, as they wrote, they didn't have a name for the Messiah, you know. They, they didn't know his name, his actual name. They didn't know that it was Jesus. Nobody knew that his name was going to be Jesus until the angel told Joseph And the angel tells Joseph, you will name him Yeshua. Jesus means deliverer because he will save his people from their sins. The prophets long ago, they they didn't know. They they were looking forward to a Messiah, but they didn't yet recognize his name. We are a most blessed people because we cry out Jesus. We speak the name of Jesus over all of our problems, over all of life. We share Jesus with people. Because we understand that Jesus is the hope of the world. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing to put a name to the Messiah, to be able to cry out to him. The prophets, they're putting the pieces together. And in putting those pieces together, they knew the Messiah would suffer. And they also knew there would be glories to follow. Now, we haven't even seen all those glories yet. You know, as, as the prophets are putting all this together, it's almost like they're looking at the peaks, you know, the mountain peaks. And so they see the one peak of Jesus' first coming. And they understand, okay, the Messiah, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, it's going to be rough. Uh, and so they see this, but then he's going to rise again, it's going to be great. And then, but there's also this other peak of his second coming and the glories that will come there. And we, right now, we're kind of living in the valley between the first coming and the second coming. And we can look back and we can see all this and we're a blessed people because of it. But at the same time, we look forward and we know, whoa, the glories that are coming, Peter's hinting at them that, man, we haven't even seen anything yet because it's going to be incredible. 
God's going to rapture his church. He's going to take his church out so that we don't experience his full wrath. And at the same time, he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus is going to come again and he's going to rule forever, rightly, and all creation will worship him. The presence of sin will be forever eliminated. These are the glories to which Peter is referring to. And Peter says, you know how amazing this is, how incredible this is? Even the angels long to look at what God is doing on your behalf. The angels look from heaven and they say, wow, look at the way God interacts with humanity. It's incredible. You say, why would angels be so impressed with how God interacts with us? I mean, they're, they're much closer with him and everything, and they're in heaven and all the stuff, you know, whatever they're doing up there. Why, 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 why do they look with wonder and fascination and awe and amazement of how, with how God interacts with humanity? You know why? Because God has chosen to exhibit his grace on humanity. The angels never experienced that, you know. When a third of the angels fell, God didn't say, you know what, I'm going to show mercy on the angels. I'm going I'm to give grace to the angels. There's going to be a path of redemption for the angels. No, no, he didn't do any of that. They, they fell, and no, they're, they're lost. They're gone. They will suffer eternally in hell. That's their lot. And so the angels, they look at this, and they see God is pouring out his grace on humanity. It's incredible. And so now they're cheering us on, and they're rejoicing in heaven. The Bible says that the angels rejoice every time one sinner repents. And they're out there saying, oh man, you're not even going to believe what Jesus is preparing for you. I mean, this is so great. It's so good. And they're looking with awe and wonder with how God interacts with you and me, his people. And so what is Peter trying to get us to do? Be fascinated by our blessings. Yeah, yeah, there's trials. Yeah, the world's hard sometimes. But be fascinated by your blessings and how God is at work in your life. Even the angels look at it with amazement. So the early church, you understand, they faced seemingly impossible odds, okay? It was, uh, you're wondering, how is this fledgling movement even going to survive the vastness of the Roman Empire and the threat against them? And Peter is writing to the church, and he's not talking about the greatness of the Roman Empire. He's not pointing, oh man, you're up against something big. No, what he points to is the greatness of their God. He says, now here's why you have confidence. Because you set your mind on him who is eternal. This Roman Empire, it'll, it'll come and go. But God will last forever. You rejoice during these trials, during them, right? And at the same time, you're fascinated by your blessings. You focused your mind's attention and your heart's affection on God. And when you do that, you know what happens? All of a sudden, God becomes really big. And the world that seems so big gets a whole lot smaller. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are a big God, a great God, a good God. That you do hold all this universe in your hands. And at the same time, in the midst of this universe, you look down. And God, for your church, you said, you're my elect you're the ones I've chosen, I've picked to be in your family, to, to protect us, to love us, to do life with us forever. So God, may we rejoice in that. God, in the, in the midst of trials and, and difficulties of life, may we focus 
on who you are as we grieve because we, we, we grieve and at the same time we rejoice because we know the character of our inheritance, the character of who you are, the character of our trials. May we be a people who love you and are fascinated by our blessings. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.